0: Rich, it's Wiggly podcast number three. Yep. And this week on the show, we've got behind the scenes at Wiggly's emails from our customers, got a couple of things to discuss with questions and queries. Yep. We've got our topic of the week, which this week it's coming up to Feed the Birds Day.
1: Right. So I'm yeah, that's chatting to you about this. It's fast approaching the time of year, isn't it? When we've all got to be a bit more conscious of uh,
0: Yeah, I mean all year round feeding's good but you have to up it a bit coming to yeah. winter.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Um, we've got Farmer Phil's Report. We're reviewing the book A Little History of British Gardening by Jenny I don't know how you say this, Uglo. Jenny Uglo, okay. yeah. there we are. And Monty's Wormcast and that's about it I think. That's enough. We'll cram it in. We'll okay, cram yeah. it in. So news from Wigglers this week. We're in Gardeners' World. Have you seen Gardeners' World magazine? I have.
1: Yeah, That's a nice little article, <coughs> isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, they planted our wildflower turf at Berryfields, and it's a question of just rolling the stuff out, really. Mm, yeah. And they featured it in Gardeners' World this week, which is which is great.
1: The wildflower turf. There was, wasn't there somebody written into the Radio <laughs> Times? I mean we haven't we haven't mentioned that already, have we? So that was it was interesting that someone had written into the Radio Times. What they said.
0: I love the Radio Times letter. A lady had written into the Radio Times and said that it was absolutely outrageous <laughs> that Monty Don was promoting wildflower turf that cost twenty five pounds for one point two five square meters when he could have used a packet of seeds.
1: He could that's right, that's what they said. That's mm. what they said. But of course there are real benefits to using turf, aren't there? Yeah, well yeah, and also manner.
0: if you want to use a packet of seeds do use yeah, a packet right, of seeds? Yeah, that's seed. right. He
1: wasn't, say, he wasn't saying in preference <laughs> to, was he? He was no. saying use this yeah. rather than seeds.
0: Well, I, th- I think the turf has got its place in life. Definitely. I mean, Definitely. to me, to be able to roll out a piece of turf that seriously has got 50 different species of plants in it yeah. is yeah. fantastic. The turf's been grown without using soil and the water that the farmer uses to grow the turf is recycled. So it's just a great alternative. If yeah. you were to plant that area with plugs or pots it would be far more than 25 pounds and if you want to grow from seed well it's probably cost anything well probably less than less than a pound for that area yeah so you just take your choice don't you, you
1: do you, you, you pay your money and it you takes your chances
0: yeah absolutely Yeah, we've got a question here, quick question from Gloria Jackson. And she says, Is it necessary for me to turn the contents of my beehive composter? We get a lot of questions on composting, don't we?
1: We do. But I suppose oh, we're really a kind of leading authority on composting in different different ways to compost authority, different things. Authority, Richard? <laughs> leading authority, yeah. Well, we're, it's true in a way, you know. I'd no need for false modesty or anything. <laughs> it's
0: good job so, you haven't so, got you know, any. That's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> So uh, it, it, it's interesting. There are there are different schools of thought. Some people think it, it does accelerate the process, and there are units of composting units like the tumbler, for instance, mm. compost tumbler that that that's based on to, that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. To flip over the compost to kind of, but that's that, that again, that's a sealed unit, isn't it? Mm. So it's increasing the, the kind of the anaerobic processes of, of composting. Beehive compost, It's not quite a sealed. Obviously, it's got a lid and uh, it's containing the heat mm. more. So chances are, if you did turn the compost, you will accelerate the process. i mm. mean said so that, some people would just prefer to pile in their organic matter yeah. and let it rot down naturally. And if you're trying to encourage wildlife, like hibernating amphibians or mm. even reptiles like grass snakes, even mammals like hedgehogs, to have that compost bin as a refuge, then it's probably better not to turn it.
0: Yeah. Depends on your attitude, doesn't it? Because the beehive composter... It's got a fairly small surface area. Now, it could be argued, quite rightly in my opinion, that that makes it less efficient composter mm. because you haven't got that volume of waste to heat up. But on the other hand, to me, the beehive comes into its own way. You want to put it somewhere that it looks attractive, so you can put mm. it in places that otherwise you wouldn't bother to have a compost heap. You know, Lots of people don't want an ugly composter, That's so it's right. got that plus. But also, if you're going to compost in a cold way, so you're not going to worry too much about heat then you can add worms to it or you can add complete rot to it. So it's just as efficient as a larger one. So I think if it was my composter, I certainly wouldn't bother to turn it. No. But on the other hand, if you want it to work quickly and you want to not add any accelerator, then turning it will definitely yeah, help. Yeah. So sure. we haven't been clear at all. We've been we'll we? clear. We've <laughs> good,
1: but, but we, you know we've given our we've given our reader, uh, our listener some options anyway. Yeah. You've got choices. That's, uh, that's pretty much what it matched <laughs> <Yeah>, to.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's really nice to have a compost heap that actually has shelter for other animals. You know, people it often is. go, ah, if they see anything in there that's not breaking their waste down. But actually...
1: It's part of the process, isn't it? So it's, it's just so important interest, to be able to do that. It? You're increasing habitat in the garden by having a, by having a compost yeah. bin. So what could that.
0: they find in there besides grass snakes? Because that'll put them right off on it
1: yeah maybe i think grass snakes are harmless aren't they though they won't uh, they they don't bite they they're they're more likely to play dead if you come into contact with them rather than rather than sort of bite you and they're not poisonous anyway but you'll find bumblebees nesting in in a compost heap for instance they like that kind of you know they'll delve into the bottom of the compost heap and and they'll they'll sort of excavate it hedgehogs avoid hedgehogs you can find hedgehogs in compost heaps they'll hibernate in there They'll make their nest in there. They'll even have young in there. So, mm. you know, it's it's a nice little environment mm. for dogs. You'll get voles and mice. Mm. Uh, but you'll also get get all sorts of amphibians, like newts and mm. toads and frogs will even take out refuge in them. Mm. The so they don't bottom want, bottom want their world turned over. They don't want their world turned over. and no. no, no, they, they thrive on, on neglect in, in certain respects. So so, so on the basis of one or the be. other,
0: bearing in mind I can't bear to sit on the fence, it's a no, isn't it? Yeah, it is, I, okay. think, so. I think so. All right, uh, next email. It's about the can of worms, worm composting kit. I recently bought the... Oh, this is from Julie Meadows. I recently bought the can of worms, been using it since the end of June. However, I'm not sure if I'm overfeeding the worms. I've just moved on to the third tier, so you've got three levels in the composter that you build up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The worms do not seem to have moved up into the second yet. The compost is wet. I'm getting lots of liquid fertiliser. About a fifth of a watering can a week. Let me think. So that would be about a litre, Mm. I would think. My mum gets much less than that. I've been leaving the watering can under the tap, and at first I found a few dead worms in the water in the sump. Advice, please.
1: Well, I think what's happening is, obviously, (coughs) the liquid is created by the worms ingesting the green waste, isn't it, generally? what's probably and
0: happening some, is uh, some rain
1: water well. absolutely but I think probably what's happening is that she's putting in a lot of green waste perhaps not much dry fibrous waste mm. and also the environment that she's creating because it's perhaps quite wet quite sludgy and it may be getting acidic as a, as a consequence the worms are trying to move away from that area and they're kind of migrating down to the bottom of the compost bin which is why she may be finding some of them in the sump yeah. Um, really you, you need to sort of create an environment that encourages the worms to live under the, the medium that is you know, the household waste that you're putting into your composter
0: so in effect what she's putting in is what she's getting out Right. So if you put a lot of waste with a lot of water in then you're going to get a lot of liquid. A lot of out.
1: liquid, that's right. If the no, It's not
0: a big problem. No, not it? at
1: all. I mean the liquid is is absolutely fantastic. It's it's so nutritious. So it's so much more nutritious than some of the, you know, the conventional tomato feed plant mm. foods that you can buy. You can just dilute that down and you can use it as a to, to water your household plants but also your garden and your you know your vegetables. Yeah. So to get that is you know is a fantastic opportunity anyway, something that you won't be able to to get from a conventional compost heap of course the liquid drains got, away to the ground. We've got it?
0: some people who use a can of worms who are bottling up their liquid and selling it. Right, right.
1: yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I think that's a bit extreme. Yeah, it's enter-
1: enterprising anyway, yeah, isn't it? We yeah. had one
0: guy who, his next-door neighbours <coughs> had a really nice shiny car, and he had piled up all his liquid feed in um, pop bottles by his fence, ready to use it. Yeah. And one day, luckily the neighbours had gone for a walk and the pot bottle started going, poof, poof, poof. Oh, and
1: they sprayed
0: it? the car. Oh, no. And he had to go and wash the liquid oh, off the car because no. the liquid had actually fermented. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. And blown Sprew up the in bottles.
1: the bottle. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh. Oh, yeah, much than that. Fermented worm <laughs> juice. That'll be something yeah. else. Powerful yeah, worm yeah, juice. powerful.
0: Um, so, anyway, to fix the situation, is she going to add cardboard? Is she going to have dry matter? Because, obviously... Yeah,
1: that's what she's got to do. I mean, the chances are she's not adding anywhere near enough dry, fibrous waste like cardboard and newspaper, scrunched-up cardboard and newspaper or shredded cardboard and newspaper. Throw it in there. A good kind of rule of thumb is to use a good quarter should be dry, fibrous waste right. by volume. Even yeah. you know, a third a third of the stuff you're adding to it could be um, for cardboard or newspaper. Mm. You can use any any sort of paper, anything, any paper with black print on. Most most black print is is carbon based, so um, it, you know it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt the worms at all. Yeah, and the inside,
0: so, inside of blue yeah, rolls. Inside, yeah. Well, that's think
1: you see, it's a great way of getting rid of your your toilet roll holders and your and your cardboard egg boxes. You know, so mm. uh, it's a fantastic way of being able to turn something like that into a, into a, a, a really useful resource that you can use on your garden.
0: Great. Well, I hope that helps, Julie. And if you've got any queries or questions that you want to ask Richard or myself or any of the Wiggly team, just email us at heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk or
1: Richard at (laughs) wigglywigglers.co.uk
0: Or you can contact us through Heather's blog, make comments to the show notes this week by clicking on the link in the podcast or go to wigglywigglers.co.uk. Excellent. It's coming up to the time of year when everyone starts to think about feeding their birds, Rich.
1: it is colder days, colder nights.
0: Yeah, but actually, you see, birds need feeding pretty much all year round. It benefits them all the time, but we've noticed in the last couple of months that they're not eating as much seed and mealworms here at the farm as they usually do. Right. And I think that is because there's so much other food available for them in all sorts. I think they're still getting worms out of the ground and things like that. But as it comes colder, they'll need. A real boost.
1: I think you're probably right. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, some people say perhaps you shouldn't feed the birds in the summertime, and Mm. you know, it makes them go out and forage more for food. But if you're providing a a food source that isn't detrimental to the bird, then perhaps it's better to continue providing that food source right through the year rather than stopping it Mm. and forcing that bird to go out to try harder to find the food. I mean, it's you know, it's probably better to have some sort of sense of consistency. Yeah,
0: I mean, people come up with so many excuses of why not to feed the birds, but Mm. really, the RSPB have done lots of research on when and how to feed birds Mm. and the upshot of that is that anything you can do to supplement that bird's food is going to benefit that bird to the extent where, for example, you can actually get birds to fledge more if there is more food and the survival rate of fledglings is so tiny. So many of our birds are declining or under threat that we're nowhere near at saturation point as far as food goes. I think that there's other things that we can do that are of equal benefit or more benefit, in my opinion, if we can raise the amount of insects that are actually in the garden by planting for those insects which the birds feed on. Fantastic. And there's some birds that we're never going to get at. You know, you try feeding a swallow, because <laughs> yeah, I right. can't. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right, absolutely. So if you kind of, if, you, if, you're, if your garden is created with wildlife in mind, then you're, you know, you're going to be helping the, the fly life, which in turn helps the bird life. Yeah,
0: even as far as putting nesting boxes up, then that means that those birds are going to live there. But in essence, the more you feed, the better it's going to be for your birds. Absolutely. Here yeah. on the farm, we're feeding nine different types of food, and it ends up being well over 20 kilos a week.
1: <laughs> that's good. That's a fair
0: dollop, isn't well, it? Well, I think it might be a little bit obsessive.
1: What sort of species of birds have you got there? With you know, when you're feeding all that different things.
0: Oh, of food? we've got so many different species of birds. I mean, we've got all the usual ones—the robins and the blackbirds. We've got song thrush, right. which is not as usual as it was. I don't no, think. that's right. And we've got there. green finches, chaffinches, goldfinches. We've got green woodpeckers, spotted woodpeckers, we've got siskins, we've got pheasants, we've got barn owls, obviously they're not feeding on it, but they're feeding on whatever's here for her food. <coughs> we've got so many different species. I mean, I am absolutely useless on birdsong, but when we had Jenny Steele over, who's the wildlife expert, mm. she was going, ooh, there's a wren, and ooh, there's a so-and-so. Mm. I mean, I've just got myself the bird sounds on my iPod, to listen to, to try and identify. Yeah. yeah. uh, (laughs) Speckled (laughs) hern. Green woodpecker. It drives you mad.
1: Wouldn't you be better learning Spanish?
0: (laughs) That was me whistling, not really a woodpecker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, one of the things I think is really important is that we feed the right type of food. I went to our local garage and there was this... Well, I can only describe it as scrapings off the floor of the shed that was being sold as dust. That's the thing, isn't it?
1: Quality is important, isn't it? Quality bird food, because birds, you know, they're quite particular over what they eat. Uh, Well, I don't think they want to eat dust. It's important to them. And I don't think we want to buy dust. Absolutely not.
0: But also, I mean, the strangest things (coughs) that we do feed our birds, I know there is a place for peanuts, but to feed just peanuts is madness to me because there's so many seeds that are grown here in the uk or very local to the uk that can be more useful to the bird than peanuts Mm. i mean peanuts are grown in the gambia well that's fine but we're shipping them from the gambia to feed our birds here
1: yeah
0: Why, why don't we feed some more seeds i don't know
1: that's very odd. Again, it's kind of a, an awareness-raising thing when people are, are, are more aware of the species they're going to attract by providing mm. different types of seed yeah. rather than just peanuts for the tits and, and whatnot. Then, then obviously it's hard to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is fairly instantly re- rewarding hobby yeah. in that when you do put a variety of seed out, in a couple <coughs> of weeks, generally, you get different birds feeding on the bird feeder. Yeah. I think it's important to put the bird feeder where there's some shelter especially if you've got things like sparrowhawks. The people that don't feed birds, generally there's a reason. Yeah. It's like a cat or there's a sparrowhawk or something or other. There's a reason um, that they they don't want to feed the birds because otherwise it's so rewarding. It's like an instant yeah hobby, really. Yeah, yeah. So if you can put your bird feeder or your bird table where there's some shrubs or shelter, then the birds get more confident and go in and out from that shelter to the table. Yeah. And that means that, you know, you're more likely to get different species of birds, not just the bravest bird.
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> the bravest
0: thought. bird is a starling.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, there's right. nothing
0: wrong with starlings. I mean, they get bad press, don't they, starlings? They but do. But they, they are very interested, interesting they're great to watch. watch. Yeah.
1: They're gregarious, aren't they?
0: They're like hooligans of the bird world, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they're rough old boys, really. Yeah. Quite? yeah but you
0: see, robins are very keen. You know, you, if you get a robin that likes mealworms, he'll become quite keen on those mealworms so yeah. much so that, you know, often they'll come in the house. We've had two in the house while well, we've been doing this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> whether there's mealworms secretly in here, yeah, I don't I know. What what are looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And different types of food in different places. So, for example, a ground feeder with some soft bill food right. so that blackbirds can get at it. Because not all birds feed in the same place. So you've got tits that like hanging on to feeders. Yeah. But often different birds like feeding in different ways.
1: Right. So your ground feeders. When you say when you when you're talking about soft bill food, what sort of food is that then you put in the ground? Um, it's
0: feeders? like rolled oats, dried mealworms, but also things like raisins and sultanas. Right, right. So softer food. Yeah. Um Still got the protein in it, but it's not like finch food, which is very free flowing. Yes. Yeah, sure. uh, in a finch food, you use um, sunflowers and safflower and that sort of idea. Yeah. In a ground food, you use a softer food. Right,
1: right. Excellent. Lots of folks. I mean, I know. Remember when I was a, when I was a child, we always used to put our scraps from the from the kitchen onto the bird table, you mm. know, be it toast and bread and mm. you know even even just even cooked porridge and stuff like that was left over in the bottom of the pot, and the birds really seemed to enjoy it. Mm. But it, it's interesting. Some people have, have have been asking whether or not that you know is detrimental to the to the birds. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I think. If there is a balance, there's probably not a great deal of harm in it. But yeah. the foods that you've talked about are all cooked food, yeah. And generally speaking, a bird doesn't go out and have a fry up, no, that's right. So, that's I would right. say, I remember the
1: actual fact we did put bacon rinds on that, bird yeah. Table, you did, so yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But in normal birdland, they no. don't cook food, no, they don't so I would say, pigs, generally, yeah, right. to avoid that's cooked right. food, yeah. But on the other hand, I you know.
1: Again though you see fat, the whole kind of thing about birds feasting on fat in the winter when it's cold, mm. where it kind of bolsters their energy. Yeah. That again is derived from, from meat products, isn't it? But you know it's kind yeah. of Yeah,
0: you're yeah, you're right. And I mean certainly the suets and the, the fat feeds go much better in the winter than in the summer. Yeah. So they obviously need that. Yeah, I mean to do. keep them warm, I suppose, yeah, that's isn't right. it?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, so I think it's important to feed the birds, especially at this time of year. As it gets colder and to give them really a wide variety of food fed all over the garden, up high and down low and different sorts of feeds.:
1: Excellent yeah so I guess the message is feed the birds.: I
0: think it is. Yeah. 29th October is That's that, the day
1: That's the day. <laughs> right. But you can
0: feed them any other time too. <laughs> all right. excellent.: Well Rich, it's that time of the week that we need to go behind the scenes at Wiggly Wigglers and see what's happening down on the farm: Excellent. So it's over to Phil for Farmer Phil's report.
2: Hi Rich. So what are you going to tell
1: us? Well I think today's to t-
2: topic is Bukashi, it's which right, is yeah. a new idea to me, I, I, although having learnt a bit more about it, I understand it more now. But
0: What does Bukashi mean, Phil?
2: Bukashi is a means of using microorganisms to aid our composting processes, notably of kitchen waste, and Bukashi is a name for the bran that we inoculate with the microorganisms, which we then use to compost or help compost the kitchen waste as we add it to our bokashi bucket.
0: Well, he's all, almost right, except bakashi means pickle in Japanese. It means ferment, pickle.
1: It means uh, means pickling, fermenting in the same way that koi is uh, is the is, is Japanese word <laughs> for <laughs> carp. Oh, I see. And I think bakashi is the Japanese word for fermenting. Yeah, ah. fermenting. All,
0: okay. all of a sudden, I got in my mind a jar yeah, of a pickled, yeah, pickled carp.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, sadly, my Japanese isn't up to much, but my analogy is that it's very similar to making silage, that you use the microorganisms to effectively preserve or pickle the waste until you then. Compost it, or put it out on the garden in the soil to to benefit your organic matter content in the soil. So this, is,
1: so what's the start of the process, Phil?
2: Well, for us on the farm, we make the inoculated bran. We add the inoculant in water to the bran, mix it up, and then we put it in an airtight sack, like a silage bag, and ferment it for just over a month. And then we take it out of that and gently dry it, and it's then stable until it's wet again so that when you add it to your kitchen waste the damp in the kitchen waste activates the microorganisms and they then set to work on your cabbages or whatever else you've chucked in the bucket
0: I just had a report through the email today on Phil's first batch of Bukashi and so he made three and a half tonnes and the report came through from Holland on the results of it and she said, it's fab Well, she said something like, you know, potassium's X and such and such is Y, but in all in all it was terms. Yeah. Really good, groovy stuff.
2: Excellent, excellent. I'd expect nothing less of myself. Yeah, yeah.
0: Tell him about what happened when you put the bokashi in the grain store and why, why you did that and what happened?
2: Well, the, the idea came about that we have drying facilities in the grain store, obviously, and one of the ways we could make better use of the grain store was to use it for drying bokashi. So you put the fermented bokashi bran on the drying floor and then blow air through it to dry it. And we noticed the walls of our grain store are galvanised zinc, and the gases coming off the Bokashi as it dried were sufficient to corrode the zinc up the sides of the no grain way, store. No so we knew it was pretty potent yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, That's going to work. That's and a it good smells
0: indicator. amazing. It were you does, here on it? the day that we made the Bokashi and opened the bag? Uh, no, no. Well, it's it was like being in a kind of Bulma's cider factory. Yeah, It was yeah. Just this well, that whole fermenting, I suppose, that smell of smell. fermentation. yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. That explains a lot really
0: What does?
1: Well the analogy with being in a Bournemouth cider factory but Yeah it
0: does really, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah.
1: So we put I was here when we put uh, We put some Bokashi in a trench in the garden And bakashi works Differently to, um, it, it Because it pickles the waste It doesn't actually rot it down In much the same way as a kind of rotting accelerator might But it, it kind of pickles it And it keeps it in a sort of suspension Until you put it in the soil doesn't it
0: Yeah, practically in your kitchen, you put your waste in and then you put a layer of bokashi that Phil's made on top of the waste and then you press it down. And so with most forms of composting, there's loads of air going on in there, but this one is anaerobic. And so then you add on your next layer of waste and the really good thing is it can be awful waste, you know, like fish and meat and, Mm. you know, real gungey stuff, stuff, yeah yeah. can go on there and once you add the bokashi, it pickles it, so when you take the lid off the next time, instead of having this sort of soup of flies and gunge, it's actually fine, It's, it's pickled yeah, once you've filled the whole bin then you wait two weeks for it to completely ferment and then, once it's done, you can do what you did Rich, which was to dig it into the soil, or you can put it on a normal compost heap which is what I've done this morning. I've done my next batch and put it on a normal compost heap. Now, there is an argument to be said, why bother? But, of course, you can't normally put rancid fish and and meat onto your compost heap. And also, in your soil, it it really does a good job. So it kind of stabilises it. In London, they're using it in blocks of flats as a kind of sophisticated collection unit. So they're issuing bokashi buckets, people are filling them up, and then they're taking them away to compost afterwards. So it's a way of them being able to store their waste before it's actually processed.
1: Right, brilliant. There's a lot of juice created, isn't there, through that through that kind of process when you add mm. the bokashi to the green waste. There's a load of a little juice that you can drain off from the bokashi bucket what's the best thing to do with that juice what can you do with that juice you can
0: put that down the drain it actually cleans the drain i don't know if you produced any juice fill when you made bokashi
2: no we we didn't because we effectively the the bran absorbed the moisture which we then dried back out of it mm-hmm. what is interesting however is that the microorganisms involved in this context we're using them to if you like preserve the waste for a minute before we compost it properly but they also have a beneficial effect in the environment generally and there's quite a lot of work gone on in Japan where they've used it in conjunction with problems with polluted water and waterways and just the action of adding those microorganisms to the water or to the soil seems to benefit everything concerned and from our point of view on the farm the next step we're going to take is to try applying it to crops. There's been some work done in Japan that that shows that it benefits the crops considerably and measurably, so that from our point of view, we can produce bokashi for the bokashi buckets, but we can also use this stuff to benefit the crops on the farm, benefit the soil. We're sort of at the beginning of the thoughts and trials on the subject. I mean, one of the things we've tried is adding a bit to Monty's goldfish bowl. Yeah. And it's revolutionised it. Really. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. We, uh, we,
0: we <laughs> these goldfish, we have to clean them out about every month. There
2: are thereabouts. Yeah,
0: And he's an eight-year-old, and he doesn't really like cleaning out his goldfish bowl. No, And no. so usually I end up taking control of the situation because the goldfish can't really see out very well because there's a bit of green gunge yeah. around the edge. So we put in a little tiny bit of EM, and some ceramics, EM ceramics, into the bowl, just instead of stones. And that was, I think it's six weeks ago now, and the water is completely clear. Good God. In fact, I might take you on a tour of these goldfish yeah, to show you. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really interesting. Yeah, salmon Selma, um, yeah. <laughs> in situ, <laughs> yeah. in a clean bowl. Good. So obviously, you can use it in ponds and all sorts of things.
1: So M's, you, you've said that you mentioned M's, effective microorganisms. What, what do they, what do they actually do? Those effective microorganisms that are kind of attached to the medium, which is bran. What's the part they play in the whole sort of fermentation process?
0: Well, I'm not a scientist, but the way that I like to think of it is the same way as friendly bacteria, so probiotics. So when you eat yogurt full of bacteria, then that bacteria helps you to fight off disease that the way they're looking
2: at it i think so another another similarity would be in the same way that yeast works on sugar to produce alcohol or alternatively to make your bread rise that's a very similar process to what's going on but depending on the type of microorganism and the actual microorganism you have you get a different result and for fairly obvious reasons the japanese keep the Absolute identity of these yeah, things sure. quite close to their chest. Yeah. But if you take the, whether you know, if you're agricultural, it's like silage. If you like a drop of beer, it's like brewing. Or it's like fermenting your pickled onions or whatever. It's all related processes, as I understand it.
0: One of our customers emailed me and said, What happens if you put too much of this stuff on? You so you could get everything out of kilter. Um, and I asked, the distributor about that and her point was that the microorganisms are all around us and you can't have too many of them mm. you can't ruin anything by them they're completely natural microorganisms mm. and if there isn't anything for them to do they don't regenerate in the same way
2: if conditions are favorable yeah, it's all it. it's all about a balance and actually the japanese talk about this balance that usually when something is out of balance it goes rotten or the water is bad or the soil doesn't work and that by redressing the balance everything seems to work better and you see this in some of the processes that we know about in fermentation if the balance of bacteria or microorganisms is wrong because the, the conditions aren't right you end up with undrinkable beer or your bread doesn't rise and so on. It's it's as simple as that. And if, if you put too much in, it doesn't matter because they just don't multiply as much as they would have done if they'd had the correct amount. Sure, sure.
0: The guy behind the whole thing is a, a Japanese professor um, called Terahiga.
1: Right.
0: And we got to see him in London at a conference. And it seems to me that the main issues of the whole thing is communication because it's so difficult when you look on the website for details on bokashi and effective microorganisms cause they just blow your brains out you know i couldn't possibly buy anything to do with it until no. i'd heard it could the be person. a lot to learn but yeah because yeah. it just just all seems ridiculous he's written two books and which make interesting reading although for me quite heavy going reading mm. But I think we're at the start of something that could change composting in the yeah, UK. I think you've right. certainly you already changed composting in Japan and also New Zealand.
1: We shall see. I mean in effect there's a product that we know works well to, to compost green kitchen domestic waste. Yeah. You can transfer to the garden. And there's also a product that in in theory complements the the, uh, the the whole kind of agricultural processes, feeding the soil rather than just putting on superficial fertilizers. Um, But there's still a whole lot of, potentially, there's a whole lot of development and a whole lot of research and analysis that can still be undertaken to see exactly what it does and and, and other uses for it. The Japanese seem to have come
2: up with a, a near endless list. The, I mean, the first impression is, my goodness, we've found something to save the world. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. too much yes, to yeah. take in, but <clears throat> you can pick out things, for example, as a farmer, from time to time we spread organic waste on the land, and obviously there's smell associated with it. Yeah. And they've discovered that by spraying EM onto the manure straight away, you can virtually eliminate the smell. Right. Wow. Little things like that. That would be yeah. great on chicken manure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of yeah. course, uh, you know that's the obvious solution to yeah. that problem. Yeah. But it suggests that it is pretty active stuff and it, it does do things that we don't fully understand yet. But yeah. I'm working at it. Yeah, yeah,
1: sure.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Phil, and we'll see you next week. Well, I've decided on an interesting theme for our book reviews, Rich, and that is that all of our authors are called Jenny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So uh, you know it's going to be a bit narrow in the future, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it will um, but <laughs> <slowly>. <laughs> but last Sorry. week we had Jenny Steele's book, um, Wildlife Ponds, and this week we've got a little history of British gardening by Jenny Uglow, which I've been having a look at. And interestingly, Jenny's most famous book, which is called The Lunar Men talks about Charles Darwin's granddad oh. Um so that's her most famous book, but this one I think is really a labor of love for her and it just goes through the history of gardening but in fairly easy readable format. Um but it answers all these questions like did the Romans have rakes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she <laughs> was like did, did, did the Romans <laughs> have rakes? <laughs> did
0: <they> did? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She was at Hay Festival in 2004, so whether that's where she launched the book or not, I don't know, but she's given talks on the book.
1: You didn't, didn't go and see her at Hay, didn't you get a chance? Did you go no, and, did you chance I was to on
0: holiday then, but we're hoping to be at Hay Festival next year, aren't we?
1: We are, all being well. The difficulty is it does sort of coincide with Chelsea, doesn't it? So it's very that's, close that's, to Chelsea, which trick. is
0: probably why I wasn't there.
1: So we're not sure... Uh... Yeah. Sure whether, but hopefully i will be able to do something at the Hay Festival next year.
0: But she goes through the ages of gardening, and she's got a really nice slant on lots of things. One of my favourites was looking at what's happened since the war in terms of, you know, when we went and we grew for Britain, didn't we? We vegged and we, you know, grew everything for then And then we went through into this kind of phase of pesticides. And then there's a really funny bit where she shows you what a garden design was like in I think it's something like nineteen seventy six. And it's just now what Wiggly Wiggler's is not about. Yeah, so yeah. it's the stripy lawn and the shrubs and perfect little area. Yeah, and but yeah. it's really nice to see the progression. And it's like you said just now, everything goes round in these big circles. Yeah and she you know she shows you. Um and there's some really good things in there. There's a Webb's leak advert of how we used to buy our vegetable seed and why we had specific seed and it goes right back were monks muddy did they get muddy doing the garden why did they do it you know, there's yeah, all yeah, sorts yeah. of questions answered in there
1: um, she's talking about vegetable gardening as well as you know as well as kind of planting up your, your herbaceous borders and things like that yeah
0: she goes through all aspects of garden so she's got a fruit aspect and then she's got a, a vegetable aspect and then she's got a flower aspect but she also gives good guide to where to go and see gardens that are of a certain age. So there's about 200 gardens in there that she's used in her book and ones that have got specific things that you can go and look at. So you could even use this as a guide to visiting gardens all over the UK.
1: So in, all in all, would you recommend this book as a nice leisurely read?
0: It's got fantastic illustrations, yeah, and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, so I would, yeah, I think you know you're going on it, aren't you?
1: I am. I'm going. Uh, yeah, I'm going on holiday next week to Corsica, so this could well be my Corsican read. I think, yeah, as it's every a chance, very yeah. pleasing book. So yeah, I'm quite looking forward to starting this.
0: I mm. It's time for Monty with his Wormcast, the Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty, a weekly fact on worms. Worms live where there is food, moisture, oxygen, and a favourable temperature. If they don't have these things, they go somewhere else. So another podcast is being caught. Or should I say podcatched? (laughs) Or
1: cast, cast even.
0: Oh yes, podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's it. We've had a really good afternoon, haven't we? We've talked about some really interesting subjects.
0: Yeah. I remember the first podcast we did. It was the most beautiful summer's day, and now we're into the uh, serious autumn time, aren't we? It
1: is. It's got cold. as much colder today. I mean, we've got that anticyclonic gloom, haven't we? <laughs> 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 Associated with, with the winter in this country. And, uh, sort yeah. of dark, God, it's dismal, dark dingy
0: and, uh, day. And, uh, let's not get too <laughs> depressed. <laughs> let's not leave on
1: a leave on a low note. No, definitely not.
0: <laughs> Hopefully next week it'll <coughs> be snowing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You never know.
1: You never know. Well, we'll get the fire roaring next week. If yeah. It is. yeah, well, I
0: yeah, I'd like having a nice roaring fire. See yeah. how I've collected the logs? I can't. <laughs> I, I haven't can. really, In but I will be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that's great. So we'll see you next week.
1: Thanks, Heather. Yeah, see you next week.
0: Bye. Bye.